Good morning. This is the Bottom Rock Podcast. Today's episode is quite unique. It is Sunday morning. It's my first guest, Samantha Clark. She's on here. Sammy, I'm pretty excited to be here with her. Uh, we're in her home. Uh, like I said, it's Sunday morning. I We were debating if we wanted to switch the time from morning to afternoon, but a mentor previously told me, uh, someone who's run a lot of businesses, she said, eat your frogs in the morning. <laughs> and so uh, here we are eating our frogs early Sunday, drinking our coffee, and just kind of sharing some of life experiences. And so now we're hitting record and getting into um, the podcast. It's going to be a little bit more of an open dialogue and uh, very little structure if any, just kind of key reminders of kind of things that we wanted to touch on. Mm-hmm. But um, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Matt. And so um, just kind of introduce yourself of what you've, where you're from, uh, where you've kind of built up your business mm-hmm. and um, kind of high-end uh, pieces of where how it's related from like the bottom rock Mm -hmm. to a positive input, positive influence from finding purpose in the pain. So the, the bot to give a bit of more background because we haven't actually really talked about it too much, Mm -hmm. but the name, the bottom rock people often don't want to go to the rock bottom. They go away from the rock bottom. They are um, anxious. They Mm -hmm. get panicky of getting to the rock bottom. Yeah. But I find that through my life with uh, family development, financial things, um, immediate family, extended family, health, all that kind of stuff, when we're actually descending um, or moving towards that um, uh, rock bottom, that's Mm -hmm. actually the pain, like the loss, like the ripping apart of the relationships, the change, the change of season. Uh, But when we're finally settled there's always going to be a moment of clarity when that relationship changed, mm-hmm. when you're in that new business or that that uh, that new financial position. You know there's nowhere else to go but up, and you're yeah. finally absolutely content and almost relatively soothed that the storm's over. It's mm-hmm. not the eye of the storm. It's just literally like, okay, we're through that, and now w- what is our game plan moving forward? And so I know that you've, we've worked um, with like professionally and personally through a few things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you for one, uh, I admire what you've been through uh, personally um, with how you've been able to navigate moving and seeing the, the blend of um, different experiences that play out in the body, the mm-hmm. mind, the soul, how it influences your dialogue, how it influences your communication. Um, so I thought that with your experience and seeing it now professionally mm. expand at such a robust um, and great way mm-hmm. in the last uh, few months, it's uh, it's time that you can then like share with others so that maybe if there's just one individual out there who... It, has a similar experience or just wants to hear from a different voice than just hearing it from me, um, that you're able to connect with them through, Mm -hmm. through your insight. 
Thanks, Manny. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was thinking, because we haven't spoke about really what we're going to talk about or anything, um, but I was thinking of the name Bottom Rock, and I think often when we talk of rock bottom, it's seen as such a negative, and yet even when we're on the ground, there's something there supporting us, and I think we forget that. Like, even when we've got nothing, we're still supported by the earth, and as esoteric as that may seem, it, it, it's really true. And so I actually started, I guess, this life in what people would call a rock bottom. I had pretty tumultuous upbringing. I was a child of abuse. I had emotional, physical, um, verbal abuse and neglect was probably the worst actually. And so at 12 years old, I thought the best thing that I could do was run away and live on the streets. And I still think that was the best thing that I could have done. But as you can imagine, a 12 year old girl living on the streets, um, I fell victim to some pretty extreme and consistent sexual abuse. And in order to kind of move through that and my childhood, I was then under the arms of substance abuse. I think it's Gabo Mate that says, you know, um, addictions, it's tricky because it's like a warm hug that almost works. You know, that substance abuse, that um, escapism almost worked. And I was in that foster care system and juvenile detention center. And so I, I do believe my greatest gift that I was given was actually starting from a pretty horrific place and that becoming normal and I didn't get an education and we spoke about it before the microphone turned on us that still kind of lives in me what if I had an education would I be taken more seriously or could I provide things in a different way um but what I think I got that not everyone gets is I got to watch the human experience really young I got to see people's tone intonations their shoulders going up to their ears when someone's lying you know I had a lot of um, danger around me as a child particularly on the streets and a lot of deceit and a lot of um, you know sneakiness and I watched it I watched someone who was being truthful and I watched how they weren't and my greatest education I think was watching human nature and how people relate to themselves and to each other and over the years and over time I've just let life kind of moved me and I think we hear that so many times so you know your path is for you and and yet I've never stuck to one particular thing you know I was an athlete I was a competitive boxer I was a ninja warrior I was a personal trainer and then I decided to do yoga and now all of a sudden I'm teaching mindfulness and meditation to pretty big companies like Amazon and Spotify and I'm a speaker at an event in Vegas which I've got an NDA so I can't talk about it but after I will and that all was because I pay attention to my body and my instincts and what I wanted to do. And the one thing, I know it's kind of a long intro, but the one thing that, again, I think the gift of having an, an unusual upbringing is I see so many people that have so much pressure on them of what their parents think they should do, what society thinks they should do. Nobody expected anything from me. Nobody thought I was, I think at school, I can't believe this was a thing, but I was voted most likely to go to jail. You know, and I did. <laughs> they were right. And so nobody expected anything from me, Not particularly not my parents, or they certainly didn't tell me that. And so I had the freedom to go, what do I feel like doing? What do I want to do? And from that, I gained intuition and insight, and I could actually pay attention to my impulses. And I don't think very many people get that luxury. And so my rock bottom, or my bottom rock, was so great. Because I started from a foundation of me. What do I want? What do I feel? What resonates? What doesn't? And then, I don't know, 35 years later, I'm finally stable and I'm finally able to expand, as you said. But it took 35 years of um, resting on the ground, 
Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, no, I appreciate the, the, the sharing. And I want to use that word um, instead of vulnerability mm-hmm. because so many people are putting, uh, throwing the words out there, vulnerable and trauma. And mm-hmm. you've certainly gone through trauma mm-hmm. because it is life-threatening. It is um, significant. Uh, it does impede. But the term vulnerability that people are uh, putting out there a lot is the vulnerable is only when you're under physical or emotional attack Mm. and I'm not here to attack. I just want to share and and the listeners are there to also to share. Yeah. Um, So uh, it's a 100% a a vulnerable situation Mm -hmm. and I appreciate the sharing. Um, And I think to some people it's vulnerable whereas this isn't to me. I'm really at peace with my story. You know, to some people it'd be really hard for them to say I love you and that to them is a really vulnerable thing whereas I can tell people about my past, my history, my addiction, my subs and it's not vulnerable to me because I understand the gift that you get from that and that helps others and yourself. So it's really important. Thanks for mentioning that but actually this isn't vulnerable for me. Um, I'm at peace with my story and it's still changing every day, you know? Yeah, that's a lot of great positive progress. The... And you mentioned you had to develop instinct uh, from those different environments. And similarly, with the things that uh, I've been through with my life, the instinct, it's interesting because some cultures and some people out there, they don't actually believe in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but what I've noticed is our senses like part of like we have to become really hypersensitive like is my is my mom's tone changing is my Mm -hmm. dad's like behavior and his tone changing um or people like as a kid in the playground is that kid nearby is this is this predator this teacher uh who's looking to take advantage or our babysitter uh looking to take advantage of us and so what kind of sense are you really keen on like I know I have Mm. almost like a misophonia like I can really hear people chewing it kind of is annoying if they're sitting on a couch beside Mm. me but I can hear the tone fluctuation I know that I'm more monotone as I speak but that's because it allows my um, receptivity to Mm. like to feel all those little nuances so in my head my tones aren't monotone Oh, but it's actually like it actually fluctuates a lot. Yeah. And I think and I I notice I talk with my hands a lot more, but um, it allows me to then like sense the the subtle changes so that we don't get attacked yeah. or uh, physically abused yeah. or grabbed Aware or, of or threat any yeah. potential threat. Yeah. 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 So what? And then I've I've used that into um, kind of therapy like trying to enhance my sense of smell mm. or my sense of taste with like cooking. Um, so Which is really helpful for bringing you in the present moment actually. I often say to my clients, mm. um, I give them an exercise around brushing their teeth and I say to them, what's your toothpaste taste like? And most of them don't know because they're not actually there when they're there. 
um, just as a side note, but so the question of which like sense is particularly heightened to me, honestly, I'd say all of them. It's my neuroception. I'm so primed to my nervous system's perception of threat that I think every single sense has been heightened in me. I'm a really sensitive person. I'm deeply empathetic. Not always a great thing, <laughs> you know, empathy is wonderful, um, but it can be overwhelming if your just baseline is completely empathetic. So I think it's my nervous system. I think I really, and we hear this term a lot, befriend my nervous system. I have so much respect for, does my body feel like it's under threat? And if so, rightly or wrongly listen to it because it thinks it is. And then what is the external cue that it might be correct? So is my partner's tone a little bit heightened? Can I see him shaking? Can I feel that someone's breath is different? And then because I've spent so much time respecting my nervous system, I can then have enough space, and this is why I like to practice mindfulness, enough space to go, is this my nervous system under threat? Or am I picking up that their nervous system's under threat? And I think that's a really important difference because... I do feel people around me. And so if somebody's feeling uncomfortable, I'll feel it. And unless we've got mindfulness and awareness and, and a reverence almost for our nervous system and the wisdom that it holds, I might actually think that you're a threat, but really you're just nervous or you've had too much coffee. So I, I would say my heightened sense is actually my neuroception. And under that is everything, the sight, the sound, the everything that falls in the felt sense mm -hmm. and I think I've given myself more permission than you know a lot of other people I've met in the western world to listen to my felt sense more than my rational thinking brain and I talk about this a lot in the like seminars that I do um Rene Descartes the 17th century mathematician philosopher scientist he kind of coined the phrase I think therefore I am which gave rise to the age of rationalism which are in 2023 now as we do this, it's only recently that we're really paying attention to the mind-body connection. And, you know, I don't want to point blame, but if we had to, it was Rene Descartes. He told everybody and everyone, that sounds absolutely reasonable, that thinking is above feeling. Thinking is trustworthy, it's safe, it's reliable. Feeling is nonsensical, it's predominantly a female thing. It's unstable. And until very recently, we consciously or unconsciously had that bias. And so it could be really tricky to undo generations of, you know, the father of modern philosophy when we go on, no, I'll pay attention to my instincts, where we've been told, certainly in the Western world, the opposite, and actually judged and actively told to suppress them. So we've got to really undo that, and that's only just starting to become, in modern literature, only neuroscience is just starting to understand that actually we kind of got that wrong. Mm. But we're living from the words of, something written 1637 I think therefore I am and I can't remember the name of the book it's written down but the modern whatever 1637 yeah, yeah long time ago yeah yeah is there that kind of activates a memory where there was something when I was doing the brain evolve formula for the concussions uh these neurologists said and and medical doctors told me you can't access the brain. You can't nourish the brain. The the food and the things that we congest um, and consume cannot go through the blood-brain barrier and get to the brain. Mm. Um, so your idea of a supplement to support the brain health uh, won't work. Mm. Uh, but there was that moment that was that was like a pivot point, and I and I had, was so clear on it. I was like, mm. yeah, but. 
have you had tequila or like coffee? <laughs> like have you have you yeah. consumed anything that like my brain changes? Mm-hmm. And they said, no, Matt, that's not your brain, that's your mind. And hmm. I said, what? What? This is. And then it kind of brought me towards wait, that's my brain witnessing another brain in like a a healthy state versus a diseased state or dysfunctional state Mm -hmm. Um, because I worked with anatomy a lot. And so that's why mental health and cognitive health and even um, anything with the central nervous system has been a little bit slower because it's Mm -hmm. like I can barely comb the back of my head without like a mirror like moving it. Right. Um, So is there a point, do you remember... A, a pivot point where someone said, no, there's no mind-body connection or that's crazy or or somewhere along the lines that drove you to say, no, I am so clear on this path that this mm. has to, like, that's where I'm going. Like, yeah. you, that your old-school mentality isn't helpful for me. It's funny. You might see, like, I'm tearing up as you ask that because my whole life people made fun of the way that I viewed the world and... You know, I remember the first book, I actually stole it from a library. I was 14 years old and it was Ageless Body, Timeless Mind by Deepak Chopra. And I was a kid and I was a drug addict at the time. And it just hit me. And I remember going, this is how I think. I know this to be true. And I just absorbed myself in literature, which I guess had a a more Eastern base or a more spiritual base. And so my whole life, People went, no, 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 no. And I went, yes, yeah, because I I, I knew it. And again, I've got to credit so much of it to the fact that I didn't have a formal education. I had no choice but to go, what feels true? And I didn't have role models. I didn't have parents that were guiding me. I didn't have mentors. I had nothing. The only place I could turn for really going, does this resonate, was inward. And I avoided turning inward my whole life. I'm still slowly turning inward, but I actually had no choice when it came to what do I want to agree with? What do I want to believe? Where do I want to put my research and my insight? And so, yeah, my whole life, people went, no. And only now in the last few years, I'm, I'm reading about you know, microbiome and neuroscience that is actually crediting my little view that I've had my whole life. And it's so beautiful to see. And only in recent years am I actually getting paid for my viewpoint. And that's been a phenomenal shift because I've had this viewpoint and been in many ways made fun of it for the majority of people that have come across. And now that, you know, people smarter than me and more notable than me are having public recognition, people in my life going, oh, Sammy, you've been saying that for a while. That does make sense. Maybe she's onto something. And now in the workforce or the corporate world, I'm getting paid to come in and talk about the mind-body connection. And it's phenomenal because I've always known it. I've always known it, as of many ancient wisdom traditions. We, we've known it, and then the modern Western world, or colonization, however we even word it, taught us wrong. And we went with, you know, there's a quote that I love, the absence of evidence is an evidence of absence. And we couldn't measure what these wisdom traditions knew. We couldn't measure the um, nervous system response, parasympathetic, sympathetic, as well as we can now. Whereas, you know, when we were cave people, would have that initial response. Our pupils would dilate, would have adrenaline and cortisol. This is a threat. And we come back and there's a book that I'm reading right now, Successful Aging. I'm actually just looking at it to make sure I get the title right. By Daniel J. Levitin. And one of his quotes that I love in it, he says, it turns out that it doesn't matter if the body makes the brain smile or the brain makes the body smile. 
And what I find so interesting about that is the first three words. It turns out. Like, this is new information. But we've known it. We knew it as cave people. Our body would have a response, would see a threat. And we. And what would happen when the stress or the threat would leave, would shake, would move, would sing, would chant. And now we're talking about bagel toning and people going singing, humming, chanting, yoga. We've known this instinctively for before we even, like, had technology. And now... People are writing books. In 2020, he wrote that. And says, oh, it turns out <laughs> we just like went on the path in the wrong direction for many years. And not to bring it back, but Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. The age of rationalism. This rational brain. And I love my rational brain. I'm very rational, very logic. And it is my tool. It's not my master. Yeah. Yeah, it just... It always goes back to the basics. Like, just keep it simple, smart. Yeah. Like, nature knows what it's doing, and we're part of nature. Right. And often you'll... I mean, we've spoken a bit. I always talk about expansion and contraction, and everything on the planet's expanding. The planet itself is in a form of expansion and contraction. Our breath, when we give birth, we have contractions, and then pretty powerful expansion. And, and yet, in the Western world, we're taught to be linear. You start here, these are the steps, and then your success. Any form of rest, any form of falling is a failure. And it's so horrific for the system and for the brain. Whereas you watch a child, the only way a child goes to walk is fall, 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 step, fall, 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 three steps, fall. Um, we don't chastise that child. We go, well done, you shot, because we know it's inevitably gonna grow into its next stage. But there has to be a cycle of expansion and contraction, like attempt and fail. But we become adults and we've got to be perfect if you're creating something. Don't dare, if you're a singer, I want to hear every pitch perfect. If you're an actor, don't you dare fall a line or stumble or have a moment when you're pulled out. If you're a speaker, don't get your words wrong. And if you're a professional, don't fail a business. It's, 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 it's painful and it's suffering in the Western world where arguably we've got the most. And yet we're under more suffering than a lot of other cultures I've been to. I've been in Cambodia and lived in England, England, India, Thailand. And they smile because they know life is full of so much suffering. They've experienced so much that they know the secret is to be in the now and find joy where you can. And I've come to the Western world and I say, come, I'm Australian, I live in Vancouver. But whenever I'm in this Western world, it doesn't quite feel on par with my belief system because people are adding suffering to a pretty decent life. They'll ruminate. They'll think about that thing again and again and again and add more suffering. But really, they're in a warm bed at home with shelter and people who love them. Yeah, that's... That's kind of one of those... Like, they're, they're putting, like, almost their ID or their, like, their identity in that, like, need to suffer to then to create a story to then get that experience to then try to be able to connect but they can just do that without going through the traumas but I mean can you like that's the thing well that's an interesting debate right like actually can you because you don't know what you don't know when to I some of the most profoundly wonderful kind hearted open playful people I've met have had deep trauma because I think it, you know, we talk about post-traumatic stress a lot, whereas I think we're now talking about post-traumatic growth. Yeah. And I would not be as kind, as stable. Like, I'm working on my kindness and my stability and all these things I'm about to name. I'm still, I'm not there, but I wouldn't be as stable. I wouldn't be as curious. I wouldn't be as open-hearted. I wouldn't be able to hold as much space for people if I hadn't needed it and never had it. 
I, I wouldn't have understood the importance. I wouldn't have known about my nervous system and that if I'm having, a, if my partner's having a really big reaction that doesn't make sense to me, I can look at his body and his nervous system and go, oh, that poor man feels like he's under threat. Even if the content's irrelevant, mm. I wouldn't know that if I hadn't gone through trauma and gone through 25, 35 years of feeling like I'm being chased by this metaphorical tiger. Mm. How would we know? Where are we teaching our children that? Certainly not in school. Certainly not in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, absolutely agree. Because I, when we had a number of family members die when we were when I was younger as mm. well, and so you learn about how and closer friends when they, at a young age, kind of through some tragedies, and so you learn how precious yeah. like life is. Um, and I see it going to the office every day of mm-hmm. like, as soon as I start making something about me or my different experiences, I'm quickly humbled, um, uh, by the person coming in yeah. who have like a little bit more significant pain. Sometimes I can get caught up in like, Oh, you only have like knee pain. That's, that's your only problem. But, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's interesting because that lived experience, like you mentioned, the imposter syndrome, mm. but the the confidence, the pillar of confidence mm. that is is so strong mm. um, from your lived experience, and uh, really helps propel you forward, like when that next thing arrives, when mm. the next challenge arrives. It's like, no, I know that this is to be true. And you have the true dialogue of um, time-tested methods Mm -hmm. to support yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's um, where we've connected and you're connecting with people Mm -hmm. like in the corporate world. And it's uh, it's great to see. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of went around it the, the other route where because my foundation was a bit different in the family home I was more worried about failing mm. and, and so I so that thing that I was speaking about before that was you mm. right that other people's viewpoint on you yeah yeah so then uh, I started in health because I went to go to Queen's University to dissect the cadavers because I was so fearful of failing school mm. uh, that I went early after high school classes at 17 to Queens to go start trying to learn the Latin names to try to learn because um, I heard anatomy was the hardest part to learn and that's where you'll fail. So like oh, I tried to get ahead of it and then, oh, well, I need more nutrition. I, I see how... Um, Nutrition is so important, so I went to go study the naturopathic medicine. Mm-hmm. I see how the nerves are conducting the electricity, so I'm going to take the contemporary medical acupuncture program because that's mm-hmm. like where I see that that's going to help. Like, mm-hmm. so my foundation of confidence was already more weak, but then now I've been through. Like, I guess I'm a pretty slow learner, like, in terms of, like, building that side. So, like... Or you just learn a lot. <laughs> I think, yeah. like, are you a slow learner or do you just learn a lot? Because I think something... By volume. Learn yeah. by volume. <laughs> yeah. But I think something that's similar with you and I, and I'm not going to put it down to the fact that we both had, you know, trauma, but I think we're obsessed with knowledge and learning and growth. 
and I, I've found in my relationships that's not always the case and that actually confused me. I was really unaware of that. I thought that most people just want to absorb information and grow and it was only a few years ago that I realized actually predominantly the most people I spoke to want comfort whereas I want growth and I think you and I are always just constantly with a book or a video or a part of something absorbing information and I can't speak for you but I'm curious because I'm realizing for me that allows me to feel a bit safe you know if I'm learning then I'm I'm valuable or I'm smart or then I'm going to be better and there's a gift in that but there's also I'm ran by it like I was told I was never going to be anything I was told as a child almost every night at the dinner table I wish you were dead you're mm-hmm. you're evil mm-hmm. you're scum you know this was with my you know mashed and potatoes yeah. And that's under me, running me, that I've got to give so much value to the world. Otherwise, how do I justify being in it? And so, you know, I I wonder if we have a similar kind of thread running underneath us both, which is we have to absorb information so that we can be the best for X, Y, Z, because of X, Y, Z. So when I get into relationships and people closer, even like family members... Uh, because of the volume of books, mm. they're like, "Oh, you're a bookworm. You're um, you can't learn about life from a book." But I find that the books cultivate mm-hmm. m- and expand more thought, more options, more of a um, like how mushrooms connect um, through the forest, mm-hmm. like underground. It creates more networks. Yeah, more of an in- intense. Um, nervous system literally of of uh, connections um, and then I go and like take that option and I bring that into clinical practice or in my life of like okay well did this option work I'd rather have a hundred tools and a, like the biggest tool chest yeah. to then bring that forward and that's why it's called a practice, right? Like I, mm. we've got a private practice in a different business and we're practicing it. And I was saying, but I think before the microphone turned on, I'm just a perpetual student and I kind of teach what it is I need to learn. And I'm always just like one to five weeks ahead of what I'm teaching or maybe a couple of years ahead. But I don't claim to be a master in anything. I'm just deeply curious and I actually learn through, sorry, I process through speaking. So if I've got information that I'm intrigued by, I'll read it, I'll learn it, I'll live it, and then I'll teach it. And then as I teach it, I start becoming a better student of it, and then I feel like I've got to know a bit more. And so I think books are really valuable because you hook onto something, you relate it to your life, and then if you are in a field where you're giving this to others, you practice it, and you get real feedback going, this really resonated with my clients, or it didn't resonate with my clients. And I don't think there's anything wrong in admitting that. I think a lot of people can claim to absolutely know everything, particularly in the medical profession, which I'm not in. But really, you know, I am your God. I have the answers. And I go, I don't know, I'm just learning. But here's what I'm kind of up to. What do you think? And often I'll find, just coincidentally, if we believe in coincidences, my clients are really just a few months or a few years behind this thing that I've just discovered, this thing that I get a client that really needs to learn about the nervous system or whatever responses. And I think that's what we're all doing. We're all just in this perpetual state of learning. And I think that the scariest thing to learn about is what's going on inside. And I think that's where people have trouble. And I think that's the key. Mm. Can you put as much curious awareness as to your own internal reactions as you do to 
the football team that's on television or whatever it is. And I have found that most humans, whether they admit it or not, being still is unbearable to them. Unbearable. If they're physically still, the mind is on. And, you know, in Shavasana, I teach yoga. Um, Shavasana is dead man's pose. It's that lying down pose at the end. And Jivamukti, one of the yoga te- great yoga teachers that helped bring yoga to the West, um, said that Shavasana is one of the hardest poses to master because we're not really still. And that pose, we're meant to be surrendered, nothing, into the emptiness, santosha, contentment, samadhi, bliss. And we're not because when we're still, everything we haven't processed is up. And what do we do? Distract ourselves, go on Tinder, go on YouTube, watch TV. And when that distraction's gone, we have this really beautiful opportunity to purge, to release. But in order to do that, we've got to be comfortable seeing it and sitting with it. And I've not met many people who are comfortable doing that at all. And I think that's the key. And that's where mindfulness comes in, where I teach most of the work I do now is under the umbrella of mindfulness. And I think that's the entry point. Are you comfortable in stillness, Matt? I know that I've learned through that. And I find that um, the running, the long distance running that I've been doing does help me get there. What I've learned over the last... You know running's not still, right? <laughs> no, I know. But I used to. <laughs> no, but I, yeah. I used to distract myself though with music. Mm-hmm. And then entering a couple different events, they said you can't wear headphones mm. and like what am I supposed to do listen to myself breathe for the next two hours mm-hmm. like that's not, I don't want to do that but that's where also I learned a little bit more about the stillness yeah because things will bubble up those um those ants those automatic autonomic uh, automatic negative thoughts pop up of like running like you just feel your body a bit more like oh you've you've fat like lazy like what do you do when you have that thought so like what's your response to it um not what you want to do what do yeah. you really do uh initially so i've been able to clear it off i almost like use the visualization so i was going to ask you if you mm-hmm. have visualization tools uh or what you like mm-hmm. but almost like think of it like a bubble and like just allow it just to kind of like vent off mm-hmm. like a carbonated drink mm-hmm. um and that's why the longer distance running, by the end, uh, you are actually clear. That's almost like mm. the runner's high. Yeah. Um, where you're just, that is that space yeah. um, where your, your thoughts just eventually stop. And I listened to a podcast last night, actually, with Macklemore mm-hmm. uh, on the He's Diary of so yeah. yeah, and so he was talking about him drinking to stop the thoughts. Yeah, me too. Um, and it's that it's like stopping that ventilation. It's containing it and using the substance to depress it. Yeah. Um, instead of just getting it to expel off. Um, well, that's what I said about that quote earlier, and I think it's Gabo Mate, and I butchered the quote, but something to the effect funny. of it's... You made your own. Yeah, well, it's mine, actually. It's my quote. No, but it, it's to the effect of it's really hard to stop something that almost works. It's so hard. It almost works, and it does. So that night, Macklemore or me, whoever's using alcohol or whatever, it worked for that night. 
And this is the thing. And even speaking of movement, because there's real wisdom in what you're doing with that running, because it really is the interim, right? Because stillness is so unbearable, whether we admit it or not, it's really challenging for most of us. Um, and if it's not, I'd love to meet you and tell me what your secret is, right? But that that's what yoga is. It's a moving meditation. It's how can we meditate and find stillness with our body doing something that's using up the energy or our mind doing something. That's why box breath or counting sheep or whatever it is, something to discipline the mind. But actually when you interview adrenaline sport athletes, so the free divers or the rock climbers or base jumpers, they don't talk about the adrenaline. They actually talk about it's the one time that I can truly be present. So they're using quite extreme tools to practice mindfulness. Because all mindfulness is, in its you know most simplistic, actionable form, is awareness of the present moment on purpose and without judgment. But we are judgmental beings by nature. It saved our life. We judge that that tiger's going to hurt us. That hot plates probably don't put our hand on it again. So what happens, the key is, and this is the cycle, which is I look at everything as cyclical, when we catch ourselves judging, because you will, you then go in and don't judge that. And you start to weave compassion into your thoughts. That's why I asked, what well, when you have that thought when you're running, what do you do? Because what I actually do is go, huh, you're here. Huh. And that's taken me 16, 14 years of therapy. <laughs> you know, a therapist said that to me 16 years ago. And I'm only just truly witnessing a really unusual thought or rational behavior or something in my system that feels uncomfortable and being able to go, huh. You're here. And I think that, again, is where we come back into being aware of that on purpose and not judging that. But what we try and do is we have this battle with ourselves. We try and push those thoughts out. We try and stop them. And they're going to come back. We lean into them lovingly and going, huh. Because almost always it's something from the past. In fact, it is always. If you're present, you're not thinking. So if a thought is in your mind, it's an accumulation of what your brain has collected data in the past of. And you look at it and you go, huh. And you do that for weeks, months, years. And long enough, you'll be able to have enough space to go, that doesn't serve me. But you actually have to get really curious about it first and go, what is that? And you can come up with where it came from. Did it get it from your dad or your mom? Well, you don't need to. Right. It's not relevant. Like what you do, the bubble, that somatic kind of reorganizing of the trauma or the belief system. And you can physically kind of shift it that way. Yeah. But really the first step and the only step is to be able to go, Huh, you're here. I've noticed there's kind of a progression with it. So on those days where it's a little bit louder, mm. I'll try to, um, instead of like venting it off, almost like rub it off. Like I'll, I'll touch more trees. I'll mm. stop and like touch a tree. Yeah. Or like grab the leaves, like rub uh, the, the cedar. And yeah. then you can like smell the, the scent from it. That kind of brings me back into the present moment. And that's so wise. And I feel like so many people wouldn't understand the wisdom and the power and the importance of that. Like I can imagine there's somebody listening going, that's not going to work. And I, I my heart does. goes out to them because it's, it is the thing that works. Mm -hmm. But we're so stuck in our brain. We can't actually feel how that smell of that leaf is actually regulating our nervous system, reminding us of our connection to the planet and bringing us in a ventral state. Like because we're not taught about it. Right. So we're not rubbing a leaf, but actually that's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And it works almost instantly. And then you're like back into like, okay, don't trip on a rock. Like you're just like yeah. fully present. And then you actually, you're like in the zone then. 
And that goes back to what I was saying before when I give clients homework around brushing their teeth, can they notice their toothpaste? They can't most of the time. They don't, they can't name to me the flavor. They might go, I think it's mint. And so if you're not able to taste or smell and be there, you're not gonna get that benefit when you're stressed of rubbing a leaf and smelling it because you're actually not gonna be present. You'll be going through the motions, you'll be doing it because you heard Matt say that he does it and Sammy says it's actually really effective, but you're not there. And that's why, and I keep going on about mindfulness because it is the umbrella to allow room for all of these practices to work. You gotta first be there. You've gotta actually slow your thoughts down enough so you can smell and then notice how your body reacts to that smell. Is it repulsion, is it joy, is it peace, is it anger? But that doesn't often happen because we haven't prioritized slowing down our thoughts because we're told that our thoughts are the master, that they're the most reliable thing, that our perception is truth, and it's just not true. I often use the example, not to go on, that the mind's like a child, really loud, innocent, nothing wrong with it, really, really loud, doesn't know very much, but like thinks it does. And so when the mind is soothed somewhat, we can then pay attention to the parent, which is the body, you know, and it kind of takes a while. It lets the child run the house, it lets it feel like it's in show, holds back, but when something's really needed, we, ah, I've got to do that, then the body gets quite loud, which often is pain or illness or fatigue or psychosomatic response. And when the mind and the body, so the parent and the, or the child and the parent are in harmony, then we can listen to the grandparent and that spirit. That's that instinctive, I'll go left. Mm-hmm. You can call it quantum field, you can call it higher power, you can call it spirit, you can call it je ne sais quoi. The wording doesn't matter, but that thing that I think if we're really true to ourselves, we know there's something outside of our five senses, something that's holding the whole energy body of the world together. And that has driven me from a childhood where I got voted most likely to go to jail, went to jail, was addicted to ice amphetamine, alcohol, marijuana, was a child prostitute, to... I'm now speaking in front of huge crowds talking about the power of mindfulness. I didn't do that through logic. I didn't do that through rationale. I didn't do that through ego. I did it through this instinctive impulse to, I'll say yes to that and no to that, and I'll go left here and right there. I could never in my wildest dreams with my rational thinking brain of what Sammy wants to do with her future thought, I'll do public speaking. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, in fact, I have a, there's a discomfort with it. In my perception, my brain goes, well, that's for people who want to be showing off and egoic and like I even as I say this there's a discomfort in that but actually that's what's unfolding do you have a checkpoint or some kind of um, reflection practice Um, because what you're saying is so genuine what what you're presenting is so authentic from your lived experience and being in the kind of the self-development world. Taylor Swift has her line in her recent song, um, You Hide Your Narcissism in Your Altruism. Mm -hmm. It's, I'm sure we could probably pick off like five or six people immediately that who we know who are not. I've got two that just come to head. (laughs) (laughs) Who we know are like, that guy or that woman is not aligned they're, they're using this fake presentation. Yeah. I know people who have gone through, like f- from retreats and they're, they're yogi or they're um, mm-hmm. shaman then did some uh, like inappropriate behavior with yeah. like some of the people. It is kind of riddled and sprinkled throughout yeah. the community. 
And as you influence more people, as you move from like one-on-one coaching into greater groups, um, sometimes we're pulled into making it about ourselves. For sure. So do, do you have like a, a practice where you can reconnect with that humility mm-hmm. uh, and reconnect with like, no, I'm, I'm still just a human learning? That's such a good question. Well, I actually, I feel like I was in that place a while ago when I, you know, my social media platform blew up randomly from boxing stuff and someone said oh you're an influencer and this was a few years ago and I was actually I look back now and it was all about me and I genuinely wanted to help people like for sure and it gave me that thing that I didn't have when I was a kid which is recognition and love and compliments and validation and you know I burnt out from it and I took years of going no no and I think actually my therapist said to me when I was talking about this work that's coming up and I'm flying to a few different places, she's like, Sammy, what, what are you going to do that grounds you? And as esoteric as this answer may sound, it is under the umbrella of Ayurvedic medicine of like Kapha Pitta um, Vata, which is like, if we're too scattered, too flighty, too airy, we need to come back to the ground. If we're too fiery, we need to balance. And so I just think of the earth. If I'm really like fiery and speaking really fast and really energized, blah, 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 like that was how I used to live, I never had anything to ground me. I didn't have a home. I didn't have stability. Now I've finally got my first home. I've got two cats and I just operate a little bit slower because I've got grounding. And then when I'm too sluggish, so I'm too much kapha, I'm too like kind of exhausted, what can I bring into my life that brings me more air? And so... I understand that's not a very specific answer, but that's the whole point. That's how I think. It's not specific. It's energetic and ambiguous enough for you to go, how this relate to you? So I find things that ground me. And I think I already, which are my cats and the fact that I finally have a home and I'm not homeless anymore. That's changed my whole life. Um, even when I had a home, I kind of felt homeless until recently. But I think, you know, I, I never talk about this. I so I don't drink and I don't do drugs but actually you talk it's legal in Canada I took marijuana the other night and for me it's really really sacred plant medicine is so sacred to me and it's very rare that I'll do it and I'll do it when I'm on my own because with people I'll get anxious and I remembered a memory of a few days before and I was bragging to people um, in the yoga studio I was like oh I'm te- teaching at this event and I'm speaking at this big event and it is a big event and when I smoked that weed something in my heart didn't feel right and I wrote down in my journal, remember to stay humble. Because it was my ego. It was. I was so, and I was excited and it was innocent. I wasn't putting anyone down. Like there was no harm in it. And when I actually went into the quietness of my own mind and took marijuana, so I was out of my default mode network, the truth of it was that didn't feel right. I don't need to speak about all I'm achieving because I want to practice what I'm preaching. So, an answer, long answer to your question is I think I've got to constantly do that because I'm still, you know, I'm a child that wasn't loved who wanted to be an actress so that you go, well, then my mom would love me. Like, it's going to come up for the rest of my life. No doubt about it. And I think when I honor nature and honor how insignificant I am and I'm actually do my best work when I move out of the way and nature or spirit or whatever moves through me, I think that memory or that reminder will make me realize I'm really insignificant. It's not about me. I actually, sometimes when I'm lucky enough, my system's clear enough that I'll move out of the way and words can come out of me that have existed in eons of time and I just happen to be saying them in that moment. But I think I'll be constant because it's a nice feeling. 
It's a nice feeling to feel all those things, to get love and validation, but actually because this expansion is happening quite quick, like work's coming in quite quick, I can feel I'm a little bit overwhelmed with it. I do want to slow it down and that's really new, really, really new because I'm trusting my nervous system and my body going just a little bit of expansion, then anchor and rest, a little bit of growth and then come back to your cats and rest. Whereas all I wanted to do was growth because I had to prove that I was lovable and worthy. And so I don't know, I keep asking because I think I'll be finding new things and I think I'll always have to catch myself every day, every moment I did last week. And that's how you're authentic. That's how you keep coming back to it. I'm sure. You go, no, I'm absolutely based in my ego. I just bragged to everybody. I finally get and made the, the story sound bigger and better than what it was. But I went home and went, ah, oh, that doesn't really align with who I want to be. Yeah. That's why I, I tried to put something into my routine. Mm. I mentioned on one of the podcasts where I, a park where I could see the mountain. Yeah. Because the mountain has such a, a docile, slow rolling mm. movement to it, and and so does the moon. So we we can see the moon now mm -hmm. coming into the summer. It's a little bit easier. You can just stare at it, or going outside into the backyard. I try to grow the grass really nice, so I walk bare mm -hmm. feet and like don't really like to wear shoes outside too much. Um, that's really grounding. The other part is just like you can see north vancouver uh it's it's interesting seeing the different cities so in toronto and new york and ottawa the everything the largest thing around in terms of height and and girth and size is is man-made mm. so like the the ego and the mindset is a little bit different mm -hmm. but here people are a little bit more isolating and isolated and, and lean on nature a bit more that's because like the largest if you're looking across mm. to north end the largest like 50 story building is minimized compared to the giant mountain which it, is ultimately how it should be no right the so, reverence of nature yeah so i just uh that's how i like to kind of ground myself on a regular basis yeah it's pretty interesting nature is um phenomenal and it, you know it really really hurts my heart how we've moved away from it because we're suffering because of it and how we've really destroyed these ancient wisdom traditions and call them barbaric or nonsensical or primal when actually they're always in tune with the thing that we're now finally coming back to which is the wisdom of our body and the wisdom of how to exist coexist in nature and it hurts my heart so much that I was disconnected from that for so long. And then I see people not knowing how much smelling a leaf and going in the forest will really give them because they're too fired up, yeah, to even give it a go. Mm -hmm. And then if they do give it a go, it's hard to absorb. And it hurts my heart because it can be simple, especially if we get to choose what we eat each day. We're one of the lucky ones. We're a one percenter. If we get to choose what we eat every day, we're a one percenter. It's wild. Yeah. It's and so that kind of it, it's triggering a lot. So many thoughts. We could stay here all day. But the last part, I would say, kind of open debate, but also like mm -hmm. um, with uh, relative to faith. 
So mm. you were on that kind of bottom rock. Mm-hmm. I've been on that bottom rock. Sometimes that bottom rock's also on the high. Like you mentioned, um, wanting to expand yeah. the ego. So you can actually also have a bottom rock on the top of that mountain yeah. when you're high as a kite. And it's just running the show when you're being right. chaos. Yeah. There's two places for it. Yeah. It's and a good so point. It's really good point. The, the faith that's needed to get you back into that center, um, to get you out of that crevice and then get you down off that peak to mm-hmm. be just focused on how to progress mm-hmm. at, like in your human element. Um, how have you used faith as a incredibly resilient, perseverant, um, kind, caring woman? It's mm. a really beautiful question. You know, the first thing that comes to mind, and I don't know if this is going to sound cliche, but actually I feel like it's used me. I don't know. I don't know. I just remember when I was in Perth, I had this gut instinct saying, leave. You leave now or you'll never leave. And I was addicted to ice at the time. And I had $300 and I booked a plane, a ticket to Melbourne and my accommodation fell through and I went anyway. And that's how I got off drugs. I actually moved to Melbourne with $300, two boxes as a 16 year old girl and there was no room for drugs. And that was just a voice in my head, silent whisper that went, leave. And every big decision I've done, every yes or every no, I I don't think I've used faith at all. I think there's just been this quiet little insight and trust in me. And, you know, as no one can see this, but I'm putting my hand, like, in my heart. And I just accidentally, there's something in my heart vortex. And we now know cardioneurology. There's a, the heart has its own nervous system and the magnetic force is 5,000 times greater. The electrical Mm -hmm. force is 10,000 times greater. So it's a very real thing, this heart energy. That just speaks to me. I don't know if I've got faith. I just know I, tr- I know that voice because I've quietened my mind enough and I keep coming back to it. And even years of agony, like moving to Vancouver, I've told you it was really hard for me. I gave up a beautiful career. I gave up a beautiful existence. What I wanted to do here wasn't working. I hated it for many different reasons. Weather being one of them, people are closed-hearted, I believe too, given what I'm used to. And yet five years on, I'm now sitting here going, oh, understand all of it and I really really doubted my heart I really doubted it but I've paid enough attention it's like the child and the parent my heart this is my parent my child's going why don't you do this do that you should do that my brain's going but I go actually I know that this part of me that I don't always speak to if I go there and listen to it it knows more you don't get a child to run the house you get a parent to And I've just had enough times, starting quite young, that that was the only place I had to turn to, and it guided me. And so, you know, my eyes are kind of rolling in the back of my head because it's not like I have this external faith. I've got this internal parent, and I just kind of zone out and feel it. And then I go, what do you want to do? Do I go left or right? I'll say left. I go, okay, I really want to go right. And I don't, I go left. But you've got to get in touch with that niggle, that sense, that je ne sais quoi. Yeah. Oh, it's, everything you've said is incredibly insightful, helpful. Thanks. I've learned a lot, um, reflected a lot, triggers so many more kind of thoughts okay. in the debate. And uh, uh, thank you again for taking Always. the time today. Uh, I encourage you to keep 
whatever that means, like to keep going. Like uh, you're inspiring me to get through all the things that I go through. Yeah. Uh, and and obviously you're helping a lot of people. Uh-huh. And, it, and it's, um, it speaks to how much power you have. So thank you. Yeah, you're so welcome. Thanks. So that is the bottom rock.